Welcome to the Veterans for Peace Radio Hour and Podcast on Radio Free Nashville, 107.1 and 103.7 and streaming live at RadioFreeNashville.org. The rest of the world doesn't see it that way. And I think America has done tremendous damage to its reputation because people were looking at the Ukraine crisis and saying, we've got you clocked. You apply these things selectively. And now America has gone out and proven that when Israel violates international law, it's okay, which they were doing on October 6th before that happens, and now they're doing in Gaza. And when America vetoes a resolution, which is quite a mild resolution of the Security Council, negotiated also with the Americans, put forward by Brazil, the rest of the world, other than Russia and Britain, which abstained, is backing it. America looks like an outlier, not like a model to be emulated, but like a country that is fundamentally getting its priorities wrong and doesn't care when there is a boomerang effect across much of the rest of the world. And we are seeing an America that looks like a warmongering nation. That was Daniel Levy. We were called by our administration repugnant. They called us disgraceful. pushing peace but i tell you what there is nothing repugnant and nothing disgraceful about saving lives war war is repugnant and war is disgraceful and that was member of congress cory bush and we will hear more from daniel levy and more from cory bush and other members of congress including rashida talib and ayanna presley as we talk israel palestine and the worldwide impact and the calls for peace. But first, my name is Jim Wolgamuth, and I'm here with fellow Vietnam veteran Harvey Bennett. We're members of Veterans for Peace. Veterans for Peace is an international organization of military veterans and allies whose collective efforts are to build a culture of peace, humanity, equality, and justice. Just go to veteransforpeace.org. This radio show and podcast is on stations across the country. Thanks to the Pacifica Radio Network. We're also on SoundCloud, Anchor Podcast, Spotify, and your phone podcast app. Just search Veterans for Peace. The Veterans for Peace Radio Hour and Radio Free Nashville are supported in part by you, the listener, because it is you that keeps Radio Free Nashville going. And as a result, this radio show is then picked up by the Pacifica Radio Network so that we are heard across the country. So if you think this is important, put just go to RadioFreeNashville.org and click on the donate button and keep Harvey and I on the air in every time zone in the U.S. Oh, and if you support the work of Veterans for Peace, because we do a lot of it, go to our website. That's VeteransForPeace.org. There's a donate button there, too. We could use the help. All right. <clears throat> While the mainstream media, YouTube, Twitter, and other platforms are censoring voices of activists, and dissent, we will continue to share those voices who stand up against the establishment, who stand up against the military, industrial, congressional, media, corporate complex, who stand up for us, the global us. Week two, Harvey, and there is a lot of information out there, but things are so fluid as a weekly show, it is kind of not helpful to try and update you on what is actually going on. You can get that information from democracy now with amy goodman every every weekday and if you're listening in nashville if you're listening in nashville comes on right after us yeah but we found some clips and you found a good clip from al jazeera and this is the second week in a row 
that Al Jazeera seems to be coming up with information we can we can actually use as a weekly show. So what did you find? Yeah, this was an interview with Daniel Levy, uh, who was a former advisor to the Israeli government, actually. And uh, <clears throat> I couldn't figure out from the from the link whether he's Israeli or or not. I mean, he speaks English, so hard to say. I mean, he's all, he is Jewish, but anyway, I thought he was the most articulate and had the most insight into the big picture of why is all this horrendous, terrifying, dangerous mayhem happening now. All right. Well, all right. Well, here's the int- here's the intro from Al Jazeera. The show is called The Bottom Line, I think. Hi, I'm Steve Clements, and I have a question. In the region and across the world, what are the repercussions of Hamas's attack and Israel's war on Gaza? Let's get to the bottom line. Well, if anybody thought that the Palestinian-Israeli issue could be contained or kept quiet forever, the events of the past few weeks have shattered that notion. After the Hamas attack of October 7th that killed more than 1,000 Israelis, mostly civilians, Israel launched a massive bombing campaign across the Gaza Strip, killing thousands of Palestinian civilians, mostly women and children, and displaced half the population. Israel has also cut off food, water, and electricity. And U.S. President Joe Biden spent seven hours in Israel expressing his support, but also asking Israelis not to be blinded by rage. When he got back to Washington, he made his case to the American people for billions of dollars in new spending on Israel, bundled with Ukraine aid. So what's next for the people in the Middle East? And despite its overwhelming military power, how much leverage does the United States actually have? So there's the introduction Mm -hmm. uh, to the show. And, you know, Biden was over there for seven hours in Israel. And I did, I know he he tried to get them to postpone their invasion, but then I saw an article in the guardian last night that he was walking back that encouragement, encouragement to, uh, to hold off on the invasion for a while. So, you know, that's off, but I think he just didn't want it to happen while he was there. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Good point. So here is Daniel Levy. Today we're talking with Daniel Levy, who was a longtime negotiator and advisor for the Israeli government during the Oslo peace talks, and he's now president of the U.S. Middle East Project. Daniel, thanks so much for joining us. Let me ask you, how should Israel respond in a way that you think would be fair and just? I'm afraid I can't do justice to that question without acknowledging that we should never have been in this place. We should never have been in a situation where the constant warnings that you cannot leave the Palestinian situation to fester, you cannot have Palestinians who day after day, week after week, year after year, decade after decade, do not have their basic rights, live in in, in a regime in which their freedoms are denied, permanently dispossessed, that there's there's a good reason that the Palestinian human rights groups, the Israeli human rights groups, and then Amnesty International Human Rights Watch made a designation that the crime of apartheid was being committed by Israel against the Palestinians. Now, none of that justifies what happened. But those of us who were pleading with American administrations, with others, to get to the root causes 
how can you have Gaza be besieged? Of course, now the nature of the, the, of the, of the blockade is, is even more horrendous. But for 16, 17 years, Gaza has been under this permanent system of con- an envelope of control by Israel, where Israel measured exactly what could co- go in and go out. There was a fr- freedom of information request on the Israeli side, which revealed that the Israeli policy was to keep Gaza just above starvation level. Now, that is going to blow up. It's blown up now. And the question is, do we still stay stuck in a place where Israel believes that only a military response, that only by bludgeoning the Palestinian people into submission, will they, will they what? Will they accept more occupation? Or are we going to deal with politics? Now, I know that that can't, the politics can't be the only conversation. And Israel is justified. It owes its own people their security. I think it's gone about it in the most unserious way. Israel knows because there have been ongoing interactions between Israel and Hamas, mostly via third parties. Many in the Israeli security establishment said, said constantly, we need a political horizon. We could bring Hamas into that. We could offer an alternative to Hamas, which is kind of classic counterinsurgency. You try and pull the population away. But you can't just say, okay, we've created a military modus vivendi, and now we stop. We keep the Palestinian Authority in the West Bank week. We keep Hamas just at this level. So there needs to be a political concept to go with whatever military concept there is. Either that involves saying... Hamas will have to be part of this. That's clearly not where the narrative is now because Hamas is being called the new Nazis, worse than ISIS, and we can come back to that. Or there has to be a different political concept. What I got out of that, the most important thing that I got out of that was that while unjustified, while unjustified, it's uh, he's, what he's saying is Hamas was provoked. Well, you know what I was thinking about the other day? The the poet Langston Hughes. What happens to a dream deferred? Yeah. You know, the the last line, or does it just explode? Exactly. Exactly. And we can find that. But So let's pause, because we did find that poem. And here it is. It is called Harlem. What happens to a dream deferred? Does it dry up like a raisin in the sun? Or fester like a sore and then run? Does it stink like rotten meat? Or crush and sugar over like a syrupy sweet? Maybe it just sags like a heavy load. Or does it explode? So that's Harlem by Langston Hughes. And so now we see the explosion because for young people of Palestine, they only know of the dreams of their elders. They've lived under this nightmare for their whole lives. Well, back to the show. I mean, and and most of the people living in Gaza now and the West Bank don't remember anything else. Well, they, their older ones remember the Nakba and the, for expulsions and the slaughters in the villages uh, to yeah. uh, ethnically cleanse 
what Israel considered its territory. And uh, that's why they're in this little patch of land that they've been trying to live on. Mm -hmm. uh, it also reminds me of uh, the March of Return during 2018, I think into 2019, where they had these peaceful, totally peaceful demonstrations that was that was really grown out of just a, a civic society uh, inspired by a poet, but where they would all just come out and just just express their their deepest desires to return to their homes. They, they weren't charging, you know. They weren't trying to invade <laughs> Israel. They was they were completely unarmed, with completely nonviolent. During that time, Israel just had uh, snipers positioned on these berms across the line and would just, uh, every during every demonstration, they would shoot and kill a number of the peaceful demonstrators, uh, including, you know, a, a, very, a young nurse who had been kind of the, the darling. Everyone loved her, and she was shot through the chest while just trying to uh, help somebody who was wounded. Mm -hmm. Uh, so they killed oh, totally over 225 Palestinians. Yeah, shot and killed them. And but beyond that, there were over 10,000 injuries. Many of them life-changing, disabling injuries that they um, where they shot their legs, but they didn't just shoot their legs. They used uh, a type of exploding bullet that would you know, maximize the tissue damage and bone damage. And uh, yeah, a hollow nose. Yeah. I mean, just horrendous. And so, you know, thousands upon thousands of them had their lives completely changed. Amy, uh, Amy Goodman on Democracy Now! interviewed, I think he was a young doctor or something who went over a Palestinian American who went over and was trying and he got hit in the leg. Uh, by one of these hollow nose bullets and uh you know you get hit by one of those then it shatters the it shatters yeah. the leg it isn't a uh, it cannot heal it can't heal yeah. no and and they no. you know and then they shot you know medical providers nurses stretcher bearers they were just unbelievably cold-blooded and right. I, you know those are those are things that got very little coverage in the u.s media at the time oh for sure very, very unless you were a democracy now listener you may not have even known about this stuff no when we're trying to judge actions of israel now and what to believe and what not to believe i think we have to do that uh, based on a clear understanding of what they have shown themselves to be over history just like ukraine and russia yeah. You can't understand what's going on unless you understand the history. Mm -hmm. And speaking of the history, he mentioned the Oslo Accords yeah, yeah. in the first clip. And so now he goes a little bit deeper into that. You and I have been talking about Israel-Palestine for decades. And this largely got shoved under the rug as the Abraham Accords were coming along. People began ignoring it. And it exploded. And I'm just interested in what, from an underground tectonic perspective do you think is realistic in the future of getting rid of this pressure and resolving this in any credible way? You have to understand a few things. First of all, there was an attempt in Oslo, imperfect, wasn't going to deliver total justice. It came at a particular moment where on the Palestinian side, 
there had been a support for actually a deal that that many Palestinians would consider isn't a great deal. Just 22% of historic Palestine as a potential future state without addressing uh, the refugee displacement. But the PLO had come on board with that position and established relations with America in the late 80s. 30 years ago in 93, that gets put into the Oslo framework. Israel had gone through the first intifada, a largely unarmed civil uprising that extracted costs from Israel. International dynamics were shifting. And Israel thought, you know, maybe we actually have to do something about this Palestinian question. We can't let it fester. This is over 30 years ago. We're in a unipolar American moment after the Cold War. And the basic deal is a Palestinian party committed to negotiations, committed to a peaceful resistance of this question, and America's role was to guarantee that this got delivered on. And given the power asymmetry, occupying state, occupied people, the primary American role was to make sure Israel would actually walk back the occupation and allow for there to be a Palestinian state. Mm. Now, that didn't happen. And we've gone through various iterations of how does one manage the outcome of America not playing the role designated for it in that equation? And we got more and more into fantastical thinking, fantastical thinking that if you just addressed economic peace, which also never succeeded, by the way, but this was the American playbook for many, many years. If you built relations between Israel and its neighbors with whom it is not at war, this was the Trumpian approach, then you could leap over the Palestinian question. And the Biden administration stuck with and added its own layers of nonsense to this approach, and they believed their own lives, and they lost eye contact with what was really going on. The other thing is, as America wanted to draw down in the Middle East, and I think that they did intend to do that, they wanted to draw down while still maintaining this this notion that you can't deal in a comprehensive fashion in an architecture that would include Iran. So you kind of had a move towards that under Obama with the JCPOA. Trump pulls out of that. And if there was a chance for the Biden administration to get back in, they decide that it is perhaps too politically costly, politically difficult, and they didn't go for it. And so what you have is a U.S. that has not tried to achieve a comprehensive de-escalation. And you actually have regional actors increasingly moving down that path. But Israel's not been part of it because the Israel-Iran equation has been deemed impossible to improve with America encouraging it up that ladder. And the Israel-Palestine equation is that Israel doesn't want to deal with the Palestinians. Israel wants to continue to occupy, make it worse. And Israel has impunity, thanks to America, to do what it wants. And so you've had Saudi and Iran with Chinese mediation improve their relations, but you still have a US that is trying to drive the path of escalation. So there we have more broken promises, Harvey, and I couldn't help but think, okay, we broke our promise and we moved NATO closer to Russia, which generated their attack on uh on ukraine and here we broke our promise or we didn't fulfill our promise to try and get israel to work with the palestinians 
And what happens is it gets worse, it gets worse, and here we are. And by gets worse, one in the eyes of the Palestinians, the settlements. You know, if Israel really wanted to uh, have some kind of uh, hopeful relationship and work on a solution to this problem, they wouldn't have been going hog wild, building illegal settlements and and, uh, expropriating, dispossessing Palestinians in the West Bank uh, and in Gaza at the time with illegal settlements. And And who could have stopped that? The U.S. The U.S.? They wouldn't do it. No. They used to chide them about it, but then they quit even doing that. So, And it's all politics. Whoever was the president was was fearing the uh, uh, Israeli lobby. And uh, I won't, yeah. I, I won't it, even it, say it, Jewish because this isn't this is all politics, Israeli and the United States. Yeah, well, the APAC was powerful enough to destroy a career. You exactly. Did anything uh, that was not. 100% pro whatever Israel wanted to do. So, well, in the next clip, Daniel Levy talks about how do we fix this? And I mention these things because if we look at where can we go from here, we have to correct, I think, the three crucial failures of the past. Number one is that Israel should be indulged and encouraged down a path of denying Palestinians their rights or violating international law rather than down a path of resolving the dispossession of Palestinians by according them their rights. And I, I think that's, that's done a huge disservice to Israel. Secondly, we have to address the fact that Palestinian politics has gone down this path where the party that committed to Oslo has been totally discredited, some by its own mistakes, The Palestinian polity has been divided. We could have brought Hamas in. America took a pass on Palestinian elections. I don't know if we can do that now, but you have to address the fact that the recognized Palestinian address does not have legitimacy with its people because it has been co-opted into the American-Israeli occupation superstructure. And we have to address the third shortcoming, which is you need a region-wide approach which actually tries to get all the relevant parties to the table. You know, the French president has hosted meetings about Iraq that involve the Iranians, the Gulfies, all of Iraq's immediate neighbors. China has hosted these talks, as I've said. America must not be warmongering, and its policy de facto lead in that direction and undermine the prospects of a broader regional peace. So I think there he's talking about the Palestinian Authority, who is the ruling party in the West Bank as opposed to Hamas being the ruling party in Gaza, uh, or, you know, I don't even know if you can say a uh, party, whatever. And we're listening to the bottom line from Al Jazeera with host Steve Clemens and guest Daniel Levy. And Palestinian Authority has basically been uh, reduced to nothing but a security operation for for Israel. And they were even they were even tossing uh, tear gas at pro-Palestinian protesters. So they were tossing they were actually to break them up in the West Bank. So I'm thinking there they are actually tossing uh, tear gas in their own people. And the, the people do not trust the Palestinian Authority one inch. No. 
And uh, do you think that this was all a setup by the United States and Israel to weaken both of these parties or delegitimize the Palestinian Authority in the West Bank and then uh, reduce Hamas to a terrorist organization, which likely they are? I, you know, I don't know enough to guess about that, but from what I've heard, uh, Netanyahu went out of his way to try to strengthen Hamas. Yeah. He saw them as the the uh, Trump card he could bring out to do anything he wanted. Yeah, because they are the ones that are identified as terrorists. Yeah, so they are the ones who are completely demonized. Yeah. So you do, you, you lift up your devil enemy to solidify uh, your situation. And I know Daniel gets to that shortly. But first, Steve asks him about what's coming. What do you think the chances are of slipping into a World War III? I think we see a real chance that the worse things get on the Palestinian front, the closer we get to a conflagration. And the other question to ask, and I'm not saying this is the case, but I think it should be in the mix, is whether the Israeli side look at this and say, is this the opportunity to actually try and address not just Hamas, but Hezbollah and other things? Because we're not, there's no framework to try and achieve long-term understandings with these actors. There's just a standard. There's no framework. America is here. We've got our people largely unified behind us. The West is backing us. America has positioned military assets directly in relation to this escalation. They will have to be dragged in because the narratives and the American politics is playing out in that way. Other Europeans might get dragged in. So Israel may be tempted to go for that moral hazard, although many in the military will say, for heaven's sake, we've got quite enough on our hands and we ain't been doing so well recently. But that temptation, I think, exists. And let's remember, Iran has other assets in the region whether that's in Iraq, and we're seeing some action in that front, whether that's the Ansrallah Houthi movement in, in control of much of Yemen, whether that's in Syria, of course in Lebanon, and the region is boiling. So you are going to have public support for a broader conflagration. And rather than step back from that, and I think the American private messaging is to step back from that, but rather than acknowledge this link, that if you don't get the Palestinian front under control and Gaza under control and stop those horrific images, then you really risk this border escalation. And I think the Biden visit, it did speak to performative American domestic politics, but I think it spoke to the concerns that they have. But I don't think he made any progress because, let's be blunt, Steve, the American president goes all the way to Israel and comes back, and the thing they can tout is 20 trucks. 20 trucks of humanitarian aid, which the UN Secretary, Secretary General and the UN Humanitarian Office are saying you need 450 trucks right. a day. Now, 20 trucks, Steve, 20 lorries of humanitarian aid, that should be what a junior desk officer is sent to the region to get. Maybe a Deputy Assistant Secretary of State on a bad day. The President of the United States, and I think the world looks at this and says, wow. These guys can't control their allies. The power of these guys is palpably wilting in front of our very eyes. Whew. Wilting in front of our very eyes. We can't control our allies. But, but we haven't been able to control Israel since 1967. So even these pathetic 20 
trucks still were delayed after he left. And when they finally did enter, you know, the roads right there in Rafa are, are 90% of them have been demolished by airstrikes. Uh, how can you even distribute anything? And, and you know, and, and they're getting intensified airstrikes. That's not any kind of setting where you can distribute humanitarian supplies. People, you know, are hiding, <laughs> trying to escape the bombs. Do you think the American public is cognizant, aware enough that it's not just Israel and Gaza, but it's also turning out to be Israel, West Bank, Israel, Hezbollah in Lebanon. Um, Yemen, the Houthis have launched rockets towards Israel. So, I mean, this is expanding. Well, American public opinion is something that Daniel Levy comments on. (laughs) And I think that marks. Uh, And, you know, you can't expect American public opinion to come out of nowhere. You know, it's the media sphere they're living in that they have to come up with their understandings or lack of understanding. All right. Well, let's listen to them. In the past, we saw that there was enormous Jewish American support for what Israel did. It was very hard to touch that. But really, I've seen more divides in Israel and among the Jewish American community since early January, since the debates inside Israel about its Supreme Court, about the solvency of its own democracy. You've seen more divides, at least I've seen that, inside the American debate about Israel and its future and what democracy means and should look like and include. Now you look at this horrible attack and the response um, to Hamas, and we see a kind of eruption on college campuses in America. Uh, We also see 300 Jewish Americans arrested on the steps of the U.S. Capitol, basically saying our blood is the same and they don't support the actions Israel is taking inside Gaza. So it is drawn thing up. I'm interested in your perspective on that and whether something has changed in the terrain and the topography of classic support. And I should note that if you look at American support and you poll American support today, overwhelming public support of Israel. 65% of Americans support Israel absolutely. Uh, 8% say you should publicly criticize uh, what Israel is doing. 23% say do nothing. So in that mixture, I just want to be clear that Americans are very much supportive of the steps that Israel is taking now. But there are these pockets that surprise me of people looking a little bit differently at the terrain. Well, I think there's there's a few things to be said here, Steve. And I think it would be staggering if that polling did not show what you shared with us because of the relentless media narrative and the way that this is being described as uh, they're worse than the Nazis, this is a second Holocaust, uh, they're worse than Daesh, this is our 9-11, this is their 9-11. I actually think that's a weird way to describe it because Israel is there, a military regional superpower. To describe this as the Holocaust, I think borders on Holocaust revisionism, actually. Um, But that's how it's playing out in in that media landscape. And therefore, public opinion is is where it is. Now, if you remember, there was massive support for the war in Afghanistan, for the war in Iraq, and that eroded and that eroded, and people saw where that was leading the United States. 
Now, also, had you have been polling a few weeks ago in a different reality and in a different media landscape, actually what you saw was the American public shifting very perceptibly in a different direction to questioning uh, America's role in this, to questioning Israel's treatment of the Palestinians. And that was especially true of Democrat voters. And that was also true of the American Jewish community. Now, the American Jewish community is hurting. I mean, the, 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 this, is, this is hard. It, it's hurting in several levels. Um, just what happened is horrendous. The, just the demographic, who, who, were the, who were the victims in the 1,400 Israeli casualties and in those being taken prisoner? You know, this is, I mean, it doesn't matter who they are, but this just happens to be a lot. Folks from Kibbutzim, folks who go out to a rave on a Sabbath. So it's not the religious crew. So it's those who the more reformed, secular, kind of liberal America would in their inner or outer circles know know people who've been impacted. This is a community hurting. You have a Palestinian, Arab-American, Muslim-American community who is seeing the indifference to Palestinian life, seeing what is happening in Gaza. Doesn't, Doesn't justify what went on on October 7th. I think the president managed to talk in very warm human terms about Arab and Palestinian Americans. He still failed to talk in warm human terms about the Palestinians on the ground who are dying every day. So that's the the landscape in America. But as you say, it comes against the backdrop of, for months, American Jews, the vast majority, looking at Israel, looking at a government with overt racists, people who want to, who are right now handing out weapons to Israeli civilians to go and do their worst, who were carrying out, and this was the language being used in Israel, in the West, pogroms against Palestinians, and they were, and, and uh, senior ministers who have plans for the mass expulsion of Palestinians. This is now part of the Israeli narrative, that there needs to be a second mass ethnic cleansing, a second Nakba. And and they were saying, wow, what's going on? What's gone wrong? Now, I understand that there's an immediate recoil after October 7th. But I think a lot of American Jews look at the deep malaise, look at the divisive figure that Benjamin Netanyahu is, really dislike Netanyahu, and they wonder what becomes of Israel. And the other piece of this is Israel's image as, as a strong country has taken a tremendous hit. And I don't think you can reestablish that just by just by seeing more Palestinian blood. I actually think what you have to demonstrate today is that Israel can be a smart, strategically thoughtful understanding of the environment it's in. Because if we really look at Israel in that region and say, these guys are never going to accept us, we can never live here, then is this good for collective Jewish security now and in the future. And I think what it would be great to have is a responsible adult who's Israel's closest ally, who can speak at least in privately and get just far enough publicly to that conversation. And they have conspicuously failed to do so because if these are the new Nazis and the worse than ISIS, then you're on an exterminationist path and then you're on the road to hell. Road to hell. Yeah. And... I don't know what to say about that. I mean, that was, 
intense. That's the path they're on. For, That's the for path now. they're on. Well, something changes. You know, and every day they say they're going to intensify airstrikes. Yeah. And, you know, they haven't learned our lesson and we surely haven't learned our lesson after 9-11 in which the whole world was on our side. Almost Mm -hmm. the whole, let's put it this way. Almost the whole world was on our side. Almost the whole world was sympathetic. And the George W. Bush administration and the Dick Cheney administration ruined that by this carpet bombing of Afghanistan and then a war against Iraq. They just blew it. They, and, and these are the mistakes that uh, I think Biden was trying to allude to, but he should have been more specific by saying what mistakes we made because Israel, mm-hmm. if they would, in my opinion, if they would have um, taken a less less severe approach. And I don't know what that would have looked like. I knew they had to respond to Hamas, but they could have maybe just shut down the border. They could have played up on the sympathy that the world would have, would have shown them. I mean, 1400 people is a lot of people. And to have a terrorist attack, kill 1400 people, Israel would have generated a lot of sympathy, I think. And now, like he said, they're ruining themselves. It's sad to see. But I don't know how... Uh, I don't think Netanyahu's position is is at all amenable to moderation. The only thing that would have worked would be if we really used our leverage and say, your, your funding is going to disappear if you don't do this, this, and this. Yes. And we... Your funding and we had support. To, and we could have done that. We've got all the leverage. Exactly. But you're not going to veto any more Security Council resolutions unless you do this, this, and this. But instead, we sent two carriers. Yeah. It's, and we need the bear hug diplomacy. Yeah. Well, he talks about America in this last clip. Let me ask you finally, Danley, uh, Daniel, and, and very quickly... Um, <coughs> Is Bibi Netanyahu strengthened or weakened by this moment? And when you look over time, you know, who, who's, who's got time on their side in this conflict? Look, I think Netanyahu will have to, uh, at some moment, face the music on how this happened. And I think that happens the morning after the dust settles. And I don't think he wants to get to that day, which I think makes him a very, very dangerous leader. And he is not, I don't think he is, he can be such a unifying character after everything that's happened. So I don't, I don't think time is on his side. Wartime might be on, on his side, scarily enough. Um, I think I worry that for the Palestinians, there could be an effort here at a mass displacement. And so I worry how much time is on their side, even though I think that there is a tendency in certain quarters to think very long term. I also worry whether time is on America's side. And let me close with that thought. Because I think the look, you know, America and the president has wrapped himself in the indispensable nation. The world needs us. And, you know, I've got news for you. The rest of the world doesn't see it that way. And I think America has done tremendous damage to its reputation because people were looking at the Ukraine crisis and saying, we've got you clocked. You apply these things selectively. And now America has gone out and proven that when Israel violates international law, it's okay, which they were doing on October 6th before that happens, and now they're doing 
in Gaza. And when America vetoes a resolution, which is quite a mild resolution of the Security Council, negotiated also with the Americans, put forward by Brazil, the rest of the world, other than Russia and Britain, which abstained, is backing it. America looks like an outlier, not like a model to be emulated, but like a country that is fundamentally getting its priorities wrong and doesn't care when there is a boomerang effect across much of the rest of the world. And we are seeing an America that looks like a warmongering nation. And I worry for that. I worry for that reputation. Well, with that, we will end this very somber discussion here. Daniel Levy, president of the U.S. Middle East Project and former advisor to the Israeli government, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Steve. So what's the bottom line? Israelis were hit in such a way that they thought impossible, and this fuels their outrage. Whether they're progressive, conservative, far-right zealots, wherever they are, they say they want the perpetrators wiped out. But it's not going to be an easy or neat process, and innocent Palestinians are going to die by the hundreds every day. This could escalate, and I mean dramatically escalate. And in the West, it's hard to imagine that cooler heads are going to prevail. My guest today, Daniel Levy, has always told me that the Palestine-Israel divide is never going to simmer down and just go away on its own. It will always come back, screaming back, unless it's resolved. The events of this month really prove his point. The conflict stayed dormant and low-level for years and years, but now it's back big time. With or without the Hamas attacks of October 7th, it's hard to be optimistic that it's going to be resolved anytime soon. And that, sadly, is the bottom line. That was Steve Clements, and you can find that on Al Jazeera. Go to the website and just search on bottom line. But Yeah, this is the bottom line. Huh? Yeah, just to pick up on a couple of things, he said that, that Daniel Levy said that the United States is an outlier and warmonger. And this is what happens, Harvey, when we put so much money into our military into defense, into weaponry, that that's our first go-to. We and, and when we have a Secretary of State who acts like he's uh, coming from the Pentagon, not the State Department. I know. When the staff at the uh, State Department gets the, the word that they're not supposed to use the word ceasefire. Or anything, de-escalate. That's a no-no. That's taboo. Yeah. You know, it's so... Peace will probably get you fired right there on the spot. Exactly. Peace will get you fired. <laughs> Peace will get you fired. And there's a there's a mutiny underway in the State Department, according to a bunch of reports. Yes, I've noticed there's a couple of folks, at least well, I know of at least one, a guy named Paul, who resigned his position in the State Department. Uh, you know, the chief of staff or a a, a senior staff main member for <laughs> Rokana has quit because uh, he didn't like um, Rokana's uh, non-support. They, they occupied his office, uh, the uh, Jewish, Jewish Voice for Peace or other uh, other Jews against this genocide. That show, they never used the word genocide. From the way that Israel describes their goals... That that is the definition of genocide. Mm-hmm. Well, to share some of those voices of dissent, I've got a couple of Congress people um, that were brave. That were brave, like Barbara Lee. Here is Rashida Tlaib. President Biden 
Not all of America's with you on this one. And you need to wake up and understand that. We are literally, literally watching people commit genocide and killing the vast majority just like this. And we still stand by and say nothing. We will remember this. But all of you, you need to know. I swear to God, Allah. You are on the right side of history. You are. You're doing everything possible to save lives. What is wrong with that? Stop it with trying to try to politicize this. One one goal. Save lives. That's it. That came from the human re- humanist report hosted by Mike Figueredo. And uh, he, he did a nice uh, segment comparing the 16 congresspeople with um, Barbara Lee, who was the one lone vote against giving Bush that authority after 9-11. Yes. Uh, you know, she is, she is my daughter, Suzanne's congressional representative. She is she? She texted us last night and uh, to tell, tell us that uh, Detroit synagogue president, Samantha Wool, a rabbi, was stabbed to death last night outside her home. And I just thought, oh, my God. And the more I thought about it, I just said, she's probably called for a ceasefire because that's who's been demonized in the press. Yep. Nobody's demonizing the right wingers. And, uh, you know, the more I've learned about this this uh, rabbi, she and Rashida Tlaib were close, close friends and worked together on a project of building bridges between Muslims and and Jews in the Detroit area. So, you know, she would be one who probably has been getting hate mail and death threats lately anyway. Mm -hmm. And uh, now it's reality. It's It's reality. And it's it's just awful. And the police are not saying anything. They're investigating. But will we ever hear the truth if it happens to be one that's not politically uh, what uh, the powers that be would want it to be. Be another one of those, but we'll never know, just like the Nord Stream 2 pipeline. Well, here's a little bit more of Rashida. We have doctors in Gaza treating babies. They say we can't evacuate the South. It will be a death sentence for these babies. They said 50,000 pregnant women are unable to obtain basic health services right now. Entire families are being wiped out. All while President Biden and Secretary Blinken and the majority of Congress fail to even hint to the need to de-escalate or facilitate a ceasefire. And that, to me, is a failure. So that was more Rashida. And then Ayanna Presley spoke out. If we affirm that all lives have dignity and value as people of faith, we cannot stand by while civilians are indiscriminately murdered. Vengeance should not be a foreign policy doctrine. Our shared humanity is at stake and we must move with urgency. Then there is Cori Bush, who did a resolution calling for a ceasefire. We should all call our congressperson. And I don't have the House resolution number right in front of me, but I think it would be easy enough to just say, I want you to support Corey Bush's. Just say Corey Bush. They'll know what it is. <laughs> They'll know what it is. I did. I called uh, Jim Clyburn's office and all they said is we'll make sure he gets the message. That's right. And Clyburn, of course, will say, oh, I don't think so. But 
Well, here's Corey Bush. With a full-scale invasion of Gaza likely imminent, hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of lives hang in the balance. And it's not only happening right before our eyes, it's happening with the support and the power of the United States government, and it is shameful. In addition to sharing my grief and sorrow, I want to affirm my strong belief that all, meaning all, all human life is equally precious, a, be a belief that above all else, we must save lives. We must lead with love and solidarity. We must fight against violence and human suffering. As a pastor, I'm reminded in this moment of Matthew 5 and 9, which says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. This biblical call to facilitate reconciliation, not violence, could not be any clearer to me. And this one. Less than a week ago, only a handful of members of Congress dared to utter the word ceasefire. We were called by our administration repugnant. disgraceful for pushing peace but I tell you what there is nothing repugnant and nothing disgraceful about saving lives war war is repugnant and war is disgraceful and so we are right and so on Monday, 11 more members joined us in the introduction of the ceasefire now resolution. So the momentum is building. Our push for peace is working. You being on the street over the last 11 days is working. So that was Corey Bush and calling out, of course, the press secretary who called. Oh, I know who, now I know who we can run for president instead of Biden or. Well, we, how about that? <laughs> yeah. How about that? Cori Bush would be great. But right now she's in the minority. And so I have another clip from Mike Figueroa of the Humanist Report. I mentioned him earlier. That's where I got the clips of the other congressman. And here he is describing. Well, here he is commenting on the Cori Bush comment and then moving on to the other side. If you take those words and you apply them to any other conflict, it's completely uncontroversial. But because Americans have been conditioned to view Palestinians as inferior to all other human beings and less than human, that call for ceasefire has been met with fierce, fierce pushback, not just by Republicans, not just by Democrats, but by progressives as well. Take John Fetterman, for example, a typically progressive member of the Senate took to Twitter to effectively call for a genocide with his full chest, writing, now is not the time to talk about a ceasefire. We must support Israel in efforts to eliminate the Hamas terrorists who slaughtered innocent men, women and children. Hamas does not want peace. They want to destroy Israel. We can talk about a ceasefire after Hamas is neutralized. Now, for a moment, let's just put aside the fact that Israel's far-right, fascist, ultra-nationalist government funds Hamas in order to undermine and divide Palestinians. Put that aside for a moment. But I just want you to fully comprehend that this is what he's calling for. Fathers and mothers burying their innocent children who are now dead because Israel is bombing Gaza. 
They are bombarding them with bombs, and there is nowhere to go, nowhere to hide, nowhere to escape. So they sit there and they take it. They wait, and they wonder if they're next. It's estimated that more than 1,000 children have already been killed. And bloodthirsty politicians like John Fetterman don't think that that's enough. So my question to John Fetterman is, how many dead children will it take to get you to say enough is enough? 2,000? 10,000? 100,000? How many children have to die for you to think it's time to talk about a ceasefire, you fucking piece of shit? How many? I mean, you're a father for fuck's sake. Imagine if your kids were in danger. Where's your humanity? But the answer is that there's no humanity. There is no humanity. So that was Mike Figueredo of the Humanist Report that you can find on YouTube. And he has a valid question. How many dead children can we tolerate? Yes, we know Hamas killed children and we've condemned them for it. And they should be rounded up and punished. But does that give Israel the right to continue to kill Palestinians including children as he said way back when when he recorded his message a thousand children a thousand palestinian children have already been killed so there it is harvey what are you doing in your local area to get the word out anything you know i try to talk to people that i see in the course of my day people i know that i have a relationship with i think that's the the only thing i can do that I mean, I can't go up to strangers and start talking. I have talked to to somebody on the gym. I was at the gym and they had, uh, actually Fox has had more coverage of all these demonstrations than than CNN or I haven't even watched MSNBC, but this guy was looking at the screen. I was looking at the screen. I just said, I just said, I just shook my head and I just said, this is going to end badly for everyone. Exactly. And he just said, well, you knew that, you knew this was going to happen. (laughs) <laughs> you knew this was going to happen? Why'd you do it? <laughs> well, yeah, well, well, why'd you do it? Good gracious. Well, here, we're trying to put together a ceasefire Saturday oh, for, for November 4th. November 4th. Now, let's hope that it's all calmed down by November 4th. Yeah. It's going to be a worldwide ceasefire effort. Yeah. So not only, not only Gaza and Israel, but Ukraine and just, you know, anywhere... Uh, whatever's going on in Africa, um, if there's something going on in Central America, wherever, you know, just a, ce- a worldwide ceasefire, anti-militarism, trying, you know, I'm hopefully going to bring up uh, <clears throat> the climate crisis. Yeah. And, you know, we just hopefully, and if you're listening to Nashville, it's going to be November 4th at one o'clock, right, uh, right outside Centennial Park. We're hoping to get double digits. Yeah. We're hoping to get 10 or 11 people. Yeah. Who, Enough know. to maybe get something in the press, but it's hard to do. It's hard to do. You know, uh, Pope Francis the other day, you know, he's come under a lot of criticism for not saying enough about the terrible Hamas and how terrible Hamas is and all that. But he just said, really, there's only one side to be on in this, the side of peace. The side and of peace. actually our intentions at, at the church they read they read in, in intentions which are like prayers uh and uh they asked they just said for peace in ukraine and peace in gaza yeah that's yeah. what we need that's what we need 
So to finish up the show, I actually got a wonderful suggestion from Veterans for Peace members, Michael August and Nell Levin um, locally. And um, hopefully they come out to our um, ceasefire Saturday and sing this song. It's called Jerusalem and it's on their CD called Welcome Home. And I want you to listen to the lyrics because part of it refers to the children of Abraham. If you know your history, and this is what I would point out to my kids when I was teaching sixth grade social studies in China Grove, North Carolina. The children of Abraham includes Jews, Christians, and Muslims. We're all children of Abraham, of the God of Abraham. Okay, now here's the song. I woke up this morning And none of the news was good Death machines were rumbling Across the ground where Jesus stood And the man on my TV told me It had always been that way And there was nothing anyone could do or say And I almost listened to him Yeah, I almost lost my mind And I regained my senses again Looked into my heart to find That I believe one fine day All the children of Abraham Will lay down their swords forever In Jerusalem Maybe I'm only dreaming And maybe I'm just a fool But I don't remember learning How to hate in Sunday school But somewhere along the way I strayed And I never looked back again But I still find some comfort now and then And the storm comes thundering in And I can't lay me down And the drums are drumming again And I can't stand the sound But I believe there'll come a day When the lion and the lamb Will lie down in peace together In Jerusalem Like that. 